You are listening to Curious Cat, the podcast that examines the shadowy space where science and the supernatural collide. I'm your host, Jennifer Hotes. Join me every week as I explore what it means to be a soul in a meat suit. Welcome to Curious Cat. Trigger warning. Today's episode deals with topics of violence and brutal crime. For my part, I promise you, dear listener, it will be shared with deep love, compassion, and I'll avoid dramatization and any exaggeration. In a time when true crime is mainstream, this is a story that will never be picked up by them. By 48 hours, by 2020, by Dateline, it won't be solved by a dynamic advancement in technology or some mystery caller to Kent police. In fact, someone sitting in jail or may even have passed on that was guilty of this crime. This is the true story of my friend, Sissy. She's trusted me with the telling. With the intention of letting her know, I will never forget her, and also to send love to her daughter who survived and is out there somewhere 30 years later. Let's get into it. If you're still concerned, know I will tell this story as though her daughter found this episode accidentally somehow and is listening in with us. Further, I'll tell you about the crime, yes, that took Sissy from the world. I'll even tell you about the dirt bag that did it. But the rest of the story will be to share memories of the person I knew that I miss, especially on President's Day. And I'll share my hopes for what we are co-creating, in a sense, with this episode. Her from the beyond and me from a kitchen table in Denver. So here we go. I love you, sissy. If you're listening on Friday before President's Day, then just know that exactly 30 years ago, my friend, a coworker, looked through a square cutout window into the office and she waved goodbye and said a sweet goodbye to me for the last time. She wore a red sweater with black polka dots. I knew her as Sissy. Her full name was Arlene Dorothy, and we called her Sissy Brown. She was a red-headed Tinkerbell, tiny, petite in every way, and more than holding her own in the cabinet company we both worked for out of Kent, Washington. It was a Kent, Washington warehouse, and she was unique because she was part of the team doing the building and finishing of these high-end cabinets. Other words that come to mind when I think of Sissy are beautiful, smart, spark plug, positive, kind, funny, determined, mama, because her daughter was the reason she showed up and worked on her feet long hours in a chilly, dusty warehouse. Oh, and young. I forgot to say she was very young. Sissy 
like me, looked younger than her age of 26. She was the kind they'd ask for ID at a bar. This was my first professional job out of college. I had two brand spanking new degrees from the University of Washington and came into the job market when the economy was crap. Californians were moving north to Washington for a lower cost of living and a good job. So I was competing for entry-level public relations jobs with California executives with 10 plus years of experience under their belt. My first job offer was from a company across the lake from UW. They said it was marketing copying machines. I knew I could pretty much market anything to pay the rent. I cried my last day as a student worker at University of Washington's certificate program. My boss, Carol Wells, a dynamo to work for, well, I'd been there with her for four years. They threw me a goodbye lunch and wished me luck at the new job. That first day at the copy company, they gave me a manual to read. It was humongous. Well, I read it cover to cover. Then they said, go to lunch. And then after lunch, they said we could start in on the calls. They'd show me how. They were collection calls, they told me. Accounts owing money. I'd call and wrangle for a time and day payment would arrive. I could escalate the claim too. Well, that wasn't what they told me in the interview and the second interview either. I drove to Bellevue Square Mall, which was five minutes away and mostly empty on that Monday, and I cried on a bench across from Cinnabon. I regrouped, powdered my nose, and drove back. I handed the receptionist the manual and told her I quit. I wasn't told I'd be in collections, and I drove home. Carol Wells? She moved mountains to get me back to work for a few weeks while I tried again. And within a week, I landed a marketing job at a small, high-end company on the South End, Kent, Washington, and facing my second first day in so many weeks. It was a small company started by a couple Microsoft execs that had made a dime or two and wanted to do something different, build something, make something. I liked everyone I knew, and I was warned by both owners, Debbie and Mike, that I'd have to do a little of everything. No two days would be alike, not when you work for a small company. I not only was up for the challenge, it sounded fun. Soon I got to know both my office workers and my office tasks and the hardworking people through the back door in the manufacturing end. Owner Mike would come into the office, dusty head to toe for our business meetings, and then disappear for the remainder of the day to make cabinets. Sissy worked in the manufacturing area. She was the only woman in there and pulled her weight. And then some. Mike saw how smart she was, how positive, willing to do anything to pay her way in life. And he even funded her classes that she was taking at night to earn her GED. Mike was a good guy. Debbie was great too. They saw a diamond in the rough with Sissy. What I knew before I knew her better is she was a single mom and she wanted to first get her GED and then 
earn her college degree so she could make a better life, better money for she and her daughter. Sissy had grit, and one morning she joined our AM business meeting, dressed not in factory gear, but office clothes. She was coming inside to be the company receptionist, which had more consistent hours than the factory, and that might help her when she was both being a mom to pick up her daughter after school, and then as a future college student. She could do her studies in the evening. Sissy and I worked in the same open space office, her desk near mine, and that gave us the chance to get to know each other for real. You know, in that space between phone calls and work tasks and on lunch breaks, Sissy was beautiful. She's one of those people that did not realize it. She didn't have confidence about that. She told me about a guy during all of our different conversations And she told me about him more than once. He was always really nice and he fixed her car for her on numerous times so that it would just run and it would help her get by. She did not have romantic feelings for him, she told me. Not at all. It's before the perfect term was invented, friend zoning, but that's exactly how she felt about who she called Turtle. Then the week before President's Day, Sissy shared how happy she was and relieved because she'd gotten a big chunk of money, her tax return. She was going to say thank you to Turtle. He was even going to fix her dishwasher that that weekend sometime. I don't know if it was Sunday, but that's where I have it in my mind. By buying dinner for him, it was her way of saying thank you. She also said that she was going to be able to go with her daughter and to the grocery store and buy real brands of things that left an impression on me because I grew up on generic groceries too. That Friday before, Sissy looked like a fashion doll. She wore a two-piece sweater set, red with black dots. And you know, we laughed about it because they always say redheads can't wear red. And she looked gorgeous with her long coppery hair, her petite form, her smart glasses. She was shimmery. She was just perfect. When she was leaving to pick up her daughter, She ducked her head near the square cutout window that went from the lobby to the office and said goodbye. And that's the last time I saw her alive. The following Monday, while most of the world had the holiday off, we showed up at our company. Private sector back then still showed up on President's Day. I got into work to find Debbie, one of the owners, answering the phone. I took over for her, and both of us wondered if Sissy was okay or wondered if she'd mistakenly thought we did not have to work that day. We held our morning meeting, and as I participated in looking at job progress, prospective work, uh, paint samples that needed to be approved, that kind of thing, I did double duty and answered the office phone. I picked up a call. And the voice on the other end was a little girl asking for her mom. The little girl asked for Sissy. She said she might be called Arlene, and she wondered if she had gone into work forgetting that she didn't have school that day because it was a holiday. 
I repeated the call and I put the little girl on a brief hold and Debbie grabbed the line and she calmed down the little girl. The little girl conveyed that no, her mom wasn't in the apartment. Debbie asked her to double check and the little girl came back to the phone, which you can imagine was hanging from a wall clunking against the wall when she let go to go check on things for Debbie. And she reported back that her mom's bedroom door was locked. She couldn't get in. And when she knocked, she didn't hear anything. Debbie knew what to do. I don't know how she knew, but she knew what to do. She simultaneously called the local police and she called Sissy's daughter's biological father as well. She had that number on speed dial as well. And she told him that her, their daughter was alone in the apartment and that we didn't know where Sissy was. That's all we knew. And he drove over there probably like a bat out of hell. It was a long time, a big gap of time. It's funny how time is fluid, isn't it? it changes. The pace of it does based on what's going on in your life. I came in on Tuesday hoping that Sissy was there and there was a big mistake with everything. But Debbie pulled me into her office and she let me know that her ex-husband had found her brutally murdered in their apartment. And it'd been almost an act of mercy that the door had been locked to Sissy's bedroom. So her daughter didn't see anything. All I knew is she told me she got a tax return. And she told me about a guy that I assume lived in the same apartment complex who would help her out every now and again. And that she wanted to buy pizza and have over for dinner. It was innocent. It was not romantic. It was not anything she had weird vibes about with this guy from what she told me. And I can tell you, Sissy was a loving person. She, even though I think she had some rough years, she, I wouldn't, you wouldn't know it. You know how some people wear their rough years, like, uh, almost like a badge of honor. Sometimes it comes across as just a more calloused outlook in life. It's the things that help them to get to where they are today. And I respect any and all versions of people. Arlene Sissy, she was open and she believed the best in people. And I knew nothing about bitterness or anger about her ex-husband, nothing about distrust or anything like that. Just simply they were young. They were too young. And the best thing to come out of their marriage was their daughter. And they tried to co-parent her from different households. She was not bitter. She was just loving and sweet. I was interviewed by the Kent police about what I knew. And all I knew, the only name I knew was Turtle. And I knew it was a nickname, but Sissy had never told me a real name. That's what they called him. That's all I had. I told them about that. I told them about the tax return. I told them about her plans that she had shared for the weekend. That's what I told them. And we waited. And then an opportunity came up and 
I think that it was less an opportunity than a window opening that I needed to jump through to have a fresh start. My dad was working on a project, trying to get funding for a project in South Africa. It was a long shot. And the guy that was going to have the funding was kind of flaky. And But I really wanted to help dad. I wanted to help him with the grant writing. I wanted to spend time with my little brother and sister. They were very young at the time, kindergarten and third grade. And and he asked me to move there, but he kind of forgot it when I showed up with my U-Haul full of stuff to say, I moved here to help you with this project. But it was mostly, I think, to get away from what happened with Sissy. But I guess I fast forwarded, didn't I? So that Tuesday, I came in and Debbie sat me down and she told me the awful news and we cried. We used up half a box of tissue and then Mike was shaken. Everybody was shaken. The foreman of the factory, Gary, was shaken. Like it was just, it was, we were heartbroken. We, we were in shock too, but we did something normal. And Mike was dust covered. He'd come in from the manufacturing plant and we plunked ourselves down in the office for our morning meeting. During the morning meeting, I answered the phone. And at some point, the room got dark, that open office. And I looked up and above me in all over, they were the old fashioned, you know, business office light fixtures. They were those rectangles that they would, um, if you looked up, it was drywall, but then there were these rectangles of plastic, right? And these fluorescent bulbs that were behind them. Well, they were dark. The entire glass was covered in darkness. It made no sense. Did the bulbs go out? Mike did what he always did. He didn't wait to call somebody to check it out. He got a chair, rolled it over, stood up, and he pulled the light fixture, the glass away. And it was coated in tens of thousands of ladybugs, red with black spots, just like Sissy's sweater that last day. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Mike said that after the meeting, he'd call the pest control company to come on out because we had an infestation. And that's what he did. Sometime after lunch, the guy rolled up in his white van and he came in and he looked at the light fixture and it was bright. The one next to it was bright. He kind of looked at Mike like, is this where the ladybugs were? He got up and he did the same thing, took off the glass. He looked around on the drywall that was flat next to that light fixture. There wasn't a single ladybug, not a single carcass, nothing. We all witnessed it in our morning meeting. That was Arlene. That was Sissy coming back to say, it's okay. I'll be okay. Ever since then, ever since the 
moment, I answered the phone and the little girl, Megan, asked if her mom was there. I thought about her daughter. I prayed for her hours and hours and hours. I think about her all the time. And on President's Day weekend, I always think of Sissy too. And I know she's looking out after a daughter and I hope to God her daughter's had a charmed life. I hope so. I hope also that her daughter knows what a special person her mother was. And if it's okay with you, because I know I'll return to Sissy, but you, like me, may want to know what happened with the crime, what happened with the perpetrator. And I promise I'll give you the details when we return from a quick break. Hey, this is Kate. I'm a forensic psychologist and crisis clinician, and I collect stories. Everything from true crime to trauma to parenthood. There's a lot more in common between depression and sociopathy, or between serial killers and podcasters, than you might think. Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss at iwbpodcast.com and iwbpodcast on social media. Ooh, new OctoberPod promos. Let's hear what we've got. OctoberPod AM. Retro horror for bold individualists. Listen bi-weekly wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe to OctoberPod Home Video for true, true-ish, and classic tales of horror and the paranormal. New videos each month, only on YouTube. For retro horror of impeccable taste... Listen to OctoberPod AM wherever you get podcasts. You're listening to the smooth sounds of retro horror on OctoberPod AM with your host, Edward October, the best horror narrator podcasts. Stay spooky, mes Wow, that was weird. Tate must have gotten possessed. I hate when that happens. OctoberPodVHS.com Hi, thanks for returning on the flip side of the promo. There were many stories at first. Well, when I say many, there were a handful of stories about the murder. From the News Tribune, Tacoma, Washington, March 2nd, 1994, reporter John Gilley wrote, A 29-year-old drifter, already charged with the murder of a Federal Way woman, has been charged in Pierce County with the slaying of a Federal Way man near Greenwater. The article goes on. He is already accused in King County of first-degree murder in the strangulation death of Arlene Brown in her Federal Way condominium. In the more recent killing, King County authorities contend Brown and her seven-year-old daughter, picked Sheehane up at work and took him home for dinner. During the night, the daughter was awakened by her mother screaming. When she went to check on her mother, a tall man with a droopy eyelid told her her mother was having a bad dream. Prosecutors contend the man was Sheehane. When the girl awoke the next morning, she found her mother's bedroom door locked. She called her biological father who lived nearby. The father broke down the door and discovered Brown's blood-stained body face down in bed. You heard that right. 
the man that did this had killed another man. And when they finally found Charles Sheehan, he confessed to both. They wouldn't have even connected the dots with the first one. They didn't have enough to bring him in on that murder. And on January 28, 1995, a King County jury convicted Charles Sheehan of murdering Arlene, Dorothy, Sissy, Brown. It wasn't strangulation. She died by being struck in the head. The jury found him guilty of first-degree murder. That means there was planning involved. It wasn't a spontaneous act. The case was presided over by King County Superior Court Judge Robert Alsdorf. And it was Rebecca Rowe who prosecuted the case. I'm going to read you a little bit from a couple of the articles about first when they were searching for him, then when he admitted his guilt, then when he pleaded innocent, and then when he was convicted, and finally what he was charged with for both murders. An arrest warrant was issued Tuesday for a 29-year-old man in the slaying of a single mother whose body was found in her bedroom. Charles Henry Sheehane, a transient, was being sought in the death of Arlene Dorothy Brown, whose body was found Monday morning at her condominium in Federal Way. She was killed shortly before midnight Sunday, investigators in the King County Medical Examiner's Office said. The cause of death was being withheld at the request of county police. And um, it was later said that it was um, not strangulation. She was struck in the head multiple times. Sheehan has shoulder-length hair and a droopy left eyelid, police officer Rick Chubb said. Police said there was a party at the condo Sunday night, and the woman's seven-year-old daughter awoke when she heard an argument between her mother and a friend. Well, that's quite the spin. On Monday morning, the girl found the door to her mother's bedroom locked and called her father, and I'll leave it at that. This article was by John Gilley, and he was, he followed up on the case. He talked about how, um, uh, Sheehan confessed to when he was brought in finally for Sissy's murder. He confessed to the murder, um, that occurred on October 6th of a 22 year old William Kiyoshi Tanako. Um, he, so according to Pierce County court documents, Sheehan accompanied Tanako to an isolated spot near Greenwater on the pretense of doing target practice with Tanako's seven millimeter rifle. And when they arrived in the wooded area, Sheehan shot Tanako in the chest with the rifle. Prosecutors contend. When Tanako fell to the ground, Sheehan finished him off with a point blank range rifle shot to the head. The object of the killing was robbery, investigators said. Tanaka reportedly had recently cashed about $6,500 in stolen bonds and was carrying the money when he was shot, court papers allege. In the more recent killing, and we don't have to go over that, but King County authorities contend Brown and her seven-year-old daughter picked Sheehan up at work and took him home for dinner, which... That makes me think he was Turtle, right? The person that she said she was saying thank you to. 
I don't think she knew he was a drifter. Maybe she did. And I don't know if he worked where he worked, but my friend Karen Rontowski had some insight when she pulled some tarot cards for me about the case. When they finally brought in Sheehane, um, I just want to say he confessed to one murder, but then he all of a sudden said he was innocent or murdering Sissy. He was held in King County Jail on a half million dollar bond, which was quite a lot back in 1994. This from the News Tribune was a follow up. A King County jury convicted a transient man Thursday of killing a federal way woman last February with a blow to her head. Charles Sheehan told the jury he didn't plan to kill his friend Arlene Brown, but struck her in rage when she insulted his sexual performance February 21st in her condominium, said his lawyer, J.C. Becker. And I'm livid, but I had to read that because how disgusting is that? Talk about victim blaming. Oh, it just makes me so mad to this day. So they were trying to say it was spontaneous and somehow it was a romantic relationship gone bad. It's, and it's blaming her somehow. And it goes on to say he, yeah, he confessed to both murders when police were interviewing him about the Brown murder. And in the King County case, Becker said Sheehan, Sheehan has a mental illness that caused him to have an unusually severe response to a provocation. Again, victim blaming. And he wasn't able to pr- plan a murder. But King County Superior Court Judge Robert Alsdorf did not allow a psychologist to testify because the psychologist was not certain Sheehan's mental illness prevented him from intending to kill, Becker said. They swore, Becker said, the exclusion of that evidence will be argued in Sheehan's appeal. And what's interesting is I did a huge sweeping search of all that. There was never an appeal. He was sentenced to 31 years and two months for the murder of William Kiyoshi Tanako. And he was sentenced to a 27-year, two-month term that was imposed on him by the King County judge for the murder of Arlene Sissy Brown. I couldn't find a trace of him, an obituary, nothing that matched his age, but I don't know. Maybe he had um, family that, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. But I, through the years, I have thought often about Sissy's daughter who survived. And I did a deep dive. She has a very unusual spelling to her name. And I did some digging and some more digging and some more digging thanks to newspapers.com. And in my search, I found a couple Megan Browns. One is a social worker in the government sector in Illinois. Illinois is where Sissy was born. That's where her parents and her one of her brothers lived. So maybe Megan ended up there. It just would bring me such joy. The other is in newspapers for contributing recipes for gatherings. She, um, this Megan Brown, she wrote a 
book called Beautiful Boards by Megan Brown. And it's all of recipes for gatherings. I'm talking like bacon-wrapped goat cheese and other scrumptious offerings. She was republished in papers across the nation. But back to the first, the social worker. Okay, the timing feels almost perfect. And this Megan Brown, she did things um, even before she was a government social worker. She was a community manager for American Cancer Society's Relay for Life. And I even found a Megan Brown that finished the Chicago Marathon in 2015. I love to think of her daughter out there making recipes, helping people on the front lines of uh, mental health crises and other domestic disputes and things. She would be such a gentle soul to help them. And I hope to heaven that's where she ended up. So I told you that I ha- um, had my friend Karen Rentowski did, pulled some tarot cards. Well, it wasn't a reading specifically for this, but we got in a conversation about Um, after she did the reading for me for my birthday that I treat myself to every year. She always peeks in on my, you know, adult kids to make sure they're thriving. And she's just wonderful. She's just such a precious human being, really. She's so precious. But then she, I asked her, I said, I have this project. I have this thing that it's this book that I've wanted to write. It's a fiction book and it's through the eyes of Sissy's grown daughter. And maybe she is kind of tough on the outside, but she's been scrappy and she's kept her life together. And, and then it's the 30th anniversary of her mother's death. And she comes across a follow-up article about her mother's passing. And it's fictional. It's not a solved crime. She is stunned by this and it sends her on a journey. And that's what I thought I was supposed to be doing with Sissy's story. She would always land on as a ladybug, (laughs) not her as a person, as a ladybug, Every time I saw ladybugs, I'd I'd go, okay, you want me to do your story? Okay, let's do your story. And then as we have been approaching the 30th anniversary of that last goodbye between us at the office, I was seeing ladybugs, but more in the abstract. And that's why I asked Karen, should I be writing this story? And she said, yes, you definitely should be, you know, telling Sissy's story. And then she pulled a couple more cards and she said that um, it was an act of grace that the door was locked from the inside so that her daughter couldn't find her. And that sounded like a superhuman type thing where if she was dying, she would just make sure her daughter couldn't see her. Because I kept wondering what happened to the guy, the guy that did it. Um, You know, maybe it was the kind of lock you could lock and go out the front door then. I don't even know, but Karen kept getting that it was an act of grace on um, Sissy's part. Then also she was getting that the person that did this, which I found out just in the last two days was Charles Sheehan. He's since passed away. And again, I couldn't find an obituary to confirm that, 
But boy, Karen has been spot, spot, spot on on so many other stuff, things that I know that must be true. She said that he, he wouldn't let her see his face. So I asked if he was disfigured. And the police officers, I forgot about this until just now, but the police officers asked me, what do you know about Turtle? Is he disfigured in any way? And I said, all I know is she called him Turtle. Karen said, I didn't tell her his nickname was Turtle. And she said, he may have worked at a grocery store and he always wore a greenish raincoat with a hood. So if you were her daughter of seven or eight and somebody kept coming over to help your mom and he was always in a green raincoat I and had the hood up because maybe he was hiding his eye, like his droopy eye. I could see maybe, you know, my kids would always give nicknames, you know, like that. So maybe Turtle. It makes so much sense. Sissy's definitely the ladybugs. I've always known this. Um, The blue-collared spiritualist confirmed this. Karen confirmed this. She is my ladybug girl. And I love her so much. I wonder what she would have done in the world. I have goosebumps right now. I know she would have been a fantastic mom for the rest of Megan's life. And I really want Megan to know the most amazing woman that I knew because I found her obituary and I'm going to read it to you here, uh, even if I cry through it, because it makes so much sense while I feel compelled to tell the story of the Arlene Sissy Brown that I got to work with and I got to be friends with. Here's her obituary. Arlene D. for Dorothy, Sissy Brown, 26, born in Evanston, Illinois, July 27th, 1967, passed away February 20th, 1994. She resided in Federal Way for nine years. She died clean and sober for the past three years. Survivors, daughter Megan Brown, father William H. Streeter, brothers William P. Streeter, Philip Streeter, nephews Philip and William, no services will be held. Arrangements by Jan and Son Funeral Home, Auburn. I tried to find on, um, and I looked for hours on Find a Grave, and I wonder if she was cremated and if they spread her ashes because I did not see a marker for her. Her father, William, passed away in 2008. He did have a marker, and his obituary mentioned um, Arlene Sissy Streeter Brown, which I thought was great, and it also mentioned Megan Brown among the survivors. So that's Sissy. I didn't know that she had overcome any sort of addiction. I just knew that she was a spark plug. She was clear-eyed. She was just a fire starter. She was such an amazing person in the short period of time that I got to know her. The person that was the receptionist after her was, I loved her too, in a totally different way. She was so funny and she knew what had happened to the person that had um, the job before her. And she made room for Sissy 
in her job, in the office. Like she had such grace about it, which I thought was pretty amazing because we were a tiny company. And I know now that I ran away to Fort Bragg so that I could distance myself from that violence and that taking of a friend. I couldn't even wrap my head around. And I was interviewed by the police because I gave them my forwarding um, phone number. And I never knew what happened with the case because they never they never needed me in a trial. I always hoped that I could testify, but they didn't need it. I guess they had enough information to convict him without that. And the conviction came so quickly that January afterward, pretty fast. I do think about her every president's day. I think about she will never be on one of those, you know, dazzling, more razzmatazz, true crime shows, 48 hours, 2020. I don't even think Dateline, I don't even think Sissy would want that. Because in the lead up to telling this story, she let me know she doesn't need a fiction book about her daughter written. She just wants her daughter to have a chance to know her, her clean and sober spark plug motivated, amazing mother. And that's why I decided to shine a light on her this week. I hope hearing her story helps you to remember to squeeze the ones you love all the time. Don't withhold that love. Tell them every day how you feel. And to know that there are people out there that they've got some serious crap that they have worked through, plotted through, and they're doing the best they can today with what they've already gone through. Let's give each other the grace and the love and let's do what Sissy did and look at each other through the best kind of rose-colored glasses. How about that? Thanks for listening to Curious Cat. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Did you hear the good news? We're in the top 20 of Supernatural Podcasts. Yay! That's all thanks to you guys and for being so loving and sharing um, on socials and all the beautiful things that you do. I just appreciate you so much. I hope you have a wonderful week ahead. Until next time, stay curious. I love you. (laughs) 